Hey y'all, I'm Mace Kerwick and I'm thrilled to welcome you back to Queer Town. Javi and I recently had the opportunity to sit down with Adri Perez of the ACLU of Texas. Adri is doing really vital advocacy work on behalf of queer and trans Texans at the state legislature. So we were ecstatic to get to sit down to talk about the work they're doing as well as their recent move to Austin, their dating life. And yes, we did talk about natural wine because this is Queer Town, baby. But before we get into the episode itself, I did want to contextualize that this conversation was recorded in late January, well before our shit show in Texas, where uh, our governor is framing life-saving gender affirmative care for trans kids as child abuse. Adri and several other people are continuing to fight the good fight. And if you want to support the work that they're doing, please go to txtranskids.org to find out more. But in the meanwhile, our conversation with Adri gets into the importance of inner resiliency, community, visibility, and other pillars that we hold paramount here within the Queertown family. So please sit back, relax, pour yourself a tall glass of wine because I think we could all use one and just listen to queer and trans people have a conversation that is fucking normal baby because I think we could all use some of that right now thanks for tuning in okay so you recently moved to Austin, Texas. Uh So one of the things that we are really focusing on with the podcast is just having everyday conversations with real people who live here. Uh, We are not paid for or sponsored by the city of Austin. We are literally just people who live here and are interested in talking about it. Uh, So with all of that in mind, how have your first few months in Austin been? Um, I I mean, I moved on, on August 3rd of 2021 and August 3rd is a terrible anniversary for anybody who is from El Paso. Um, it's the anniversary of the Walmart shooting that happened in 2019. Um, so it was kind of, it was a strange day to pick to move to begin with. Right. Um, but I think it was a way of trying to rewrite what all the terrible things I think that happened after August 3rd, 2019, including the pandemic. Um, and just like the massive amounts of loss that the 2020 and the beginning of 2021, kind of symbolized for me. So I chose to move at the beginning of August. Um, five days after moving, my dog got hit by a car and died. Oh, oh my um, And I was pretty depressed and sad for the first couple of months that I was here. And I didn't get to do or like see or have a fresh start that I was imagining for my time here in Austin at all. Um, so now that it's 2022 and January and the holidays are over and I've stopped traveling back and forth so much to, to El Paso, um, it really feels like now is when I'm getting a new start, um, both, I guess, with the new year, but just being in Austin and my apartment finally feeling like a home again. I don't know. I had never left home. I'm like 29 years old as of last week. It was well, happy birthday. belated birthday. Thank you. Aquarius Sun, Capricorn Moon. Hey. We can talk about astrology all day long. We should. <laughs> um, yeah, so I had never moved, and I I had traveled back and forth to Austin for seven or eight years because of advocacy work and working with various different organizations in Texas. And 
I was familiar with Austin. I didn't really like Austin very much, but it made sense for me to be here as somebody that had spent the last year doing legislative advocacy with elected officials and working with state agencies. And so I could move here and keep my job, which is like the stability that I so desperately seek as a Capricorn moon while still getting to like experience new weird things. Um, and I decided to just move pretty much on an impulse. Wow. That's, that's really, uh, that's really brave. So I really applaud you. Moving cities is very stressful. I I mean, moving within a city is stressful, let alone moving across a state as large as Texas. Yeah. I don't, I mean, it felt like the safe thing to do, to be quite honest. It felt like the safe move to make, to move to another city in Texas. Because of your job? Well, because I get to keep my job, because yeah. I'm familiar with Austin. I yeah. have, like, a community and a network of friends here already. Um, though I think I've had some, like, struggles making new, weird, like, art friends the way that I would have back home. Right. Like, all my friends here are, like, politics friends that I know through my job or through different events. That is something that we've talked quite a bit about with this show before, is Queer Town, when we did the live show, you mm-hmm. know, it was this amazing sort of meeting pot, and we brought yeah. on all of these different performers and community leaders and just like people to be in the same space. Mm-hmm. And I think that we're really missing that right now. And we've talked quite a bit about how the pandemic has changed what queer community looks like, and I think for an artistic community as well, you know, yeah. like the theaters that are open, you know, they're trying to be as safe as possible. So it's a lot of like yeah. masked people in the audience, which is definitely great from like a health and wellness perspective, but it does create, you know, a weirder energy where people aren't hanging out in the lobby. Mm-hmm. There's less, I think, of an interest or availability to just linger and sort of spark natural connections. Mm-hmm. I, I wonder how many times you're going to hear me burp on this podcast with a microphone being <laughs> this close to my face. Or did it just happen? <laughs> yeah, I heard myself burp. Like <laughs> I didn't hear it. Yeah, I neither. Oh. <laughs> yeah, so we always love to do a tasting uh, with Queer Town. And today we are drinking, I'm probably going to butcher this, uh, I think it is a Shasta Cascade. Um, it's a white wine. It looks like it is from California. Um, and it was bottled in 2020. I love it. It's great. It's real good. It's wonderful. I've never had wine like that before. It sort of has an apricot taste to it, in my opinion. Yeah. I don't know if anyone else is getting that. Yeah. Are you generally a wine drinker? No. No. (laughs) What's your (laughs) go-to? Um, I like beer. I'm a, I'm a sour beer kind of person, mostly, um, I recently started getting into more white wines, some like smaller ones that you wouldn't find at Albertsons, which is where I would buy wine for so long. Um, and I realized that I, I do like wine. I can't drink red wine at all because I'll get a headache. Mm. Um, but beer typically is my go-to drink because it doesn't give me a headache. I don't get super bloated and I don't have a terrible hangover from the sugar that is usually in wine. So that is, um, it's really interesting you mentioned that because that is a joke that I frequently make about the difference between identifying as gay and identifying as queer is like having that body awareness. <laughs> like, like I personally, uh, I have gluten intolerance. Uh-huh. So beer is literally what um, other alcohols might be for you. It makes uh-huh. me bloated. It gives me a headache. Uh, but wine, cocktails, I'm great with. Mm. 
I I like gin. I like a good gin. I oh, like gin's a good great. mezcal also. Okay. Oh, yeah. Yeah, those are my go-to liquors. I can't drink rum without having a terrible hangover. Um, and if I so much as catch a whiff of coconut in anything with liquor in it, I immediately become nauseated. Oh, wow. <laughs> Okay, so like poolside uh, cabanas are not no. are not safe tropical places for beverages. You. Yeah, mm-hmm. yeah. No, <laughs> I went to an all girls high school, and we uh, we drank a lot of that with uh, what was it? Crystal Light. It's <laughs> 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 like stealing your mom's Crystal Light from the pantry, and like somehow acquiring a water bottle of like Malibu rum, and then mixing it in a pitcher like in your high school friend's bedroom and getting way too drunk on a friday night i do think that there is like a uh chemical trauma that happens <laughs> with whatever like the first initial alcohol that mm-hmm. you like mass consume for me that was like sour candy apple flavored Ooh, stuff oh, wow. which is just disgusting yeah. but like i can't even think about it mm-hmm. like like no it needs to stay away mm-hmm yeah, in high school, I we were just talking about this earlier, but I went to high school in South America in Chile, mm-hmm. and our like high school party drinks were uh, Orange Fanta, <laughs> and uh, the beer there uh, was called Shop. So we had Fan Shop, which is just beer and orange soda. Which, in retrospect, I was like, we're not even using hard liquor. Like, what are we? <laughs> we're just diluting beer. What are we doing here? Well, it's limited resources. It's true. Yeah, we also had like the the major alcohol in Chile and Peru is uh, pisco, and uh, it's it's like rum adjacent, I would say. Mm. Uh, and so we would have um, pisco and coke, and we called them piscolas, mm. uh, and that was like our high school. Like if we were gonna like try to get wasted, and I can't drink either of those anymore. <laughs> <laughs> Do you have any? alcohols that make you bloated or is that just a this side of the table uh, occurrence i don't think i do um oh okay Humble I'm trying to think. <laughs> well no oh so okay i think here's what's happening and this is like a new like in the past week past month thing um this is just my age like i'm 37 i think um and you think, yeah, um, yeah, you're this like uh, acid reflux really gets worse with age and alcohol really triggers it. But I'm like, I'm like fighting it because I was like, I'm not I'm not giving up the I'm not giving up. the ghost. <laughs> Yeah, I recently had COVID and nope, I stopped. I did. And I stopped drinking, obviously. Uh-huh. And so it was interesting incorporating alcohol back into my life mm-hmm. because I like the first night I had anything to drink. I had like one glass and it was like, wow, I'm wasted. <laughs> After having COVID? Yeah, I think it was just like a testament to my weakened immune system. Mm-hmm. Um, and I don't drink that often, but it had probably been like a week, week and a half since I'd had anything to drink. And it was so funny. Just yeah. like, Oh wow! Like I'm feeling the sugar in this wine. I'm Immediately feeling the alcohol. Yeah, it is like abundantly clear that it is in my system now. <laughs> yeah, we really tried. We really tried to do a dry January, and it uh, it, it didn't really stand a chance. Both of you did. I did. You did. I, I me and my boyfriend. Mm-hmm. Um, but then we we ended up going on a trip to California, and I was like, well, we're on vacation. We're gonna drink. Uh, and then, as you should. Yeah, yeah. yeah. And then my, my dog passed away last week. And so I we were like, Mama, we are, we are drinking. <laughs> like, mm-hmm. This is what we're doing to cope. A hundred percent. I would wake up in the morning and like open a beer and yeah. go straight to the fridge and grab beer. Yeah. My friends would be like, do you really think you should be doing that? I'm like, uh, yeah, 
Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, I should. This is the only way I'm going to survive. Thank you for your concern. Uh, <laughs> check in with me in like a couple of weeks. <laughs> How old was your dog? Um, so I had gotten my dog in 2016. I had always wanted a dog. I like always wanted a dog, never had a dog because my mom was terrified of them growing up. And so as soon as I was living on my own, um, my partner and I at the time, uh, were looking to adopt a dog. Um, and I went to the shelters and looked at every single dog in every single shelter in El Paso and was ready to like give up and just kind of like look at this dog that I maybe sort of liked and so I was sitting in the office and waiting for them to bring, like, uh, bring the other dog that I didn't really like, but was like trying to convince myself to save a dog. Because once you're there and you see the like plethora of dogs that need homes, you're like, I should take one of them home, I guess. Um, and I didn't really like him. His name was Ollie. Um, but while I was sitting there in the office, this man walked in with four schnauzers and three of them were in crates and one of them wasn't in a crate. And it was this like really windy, rainy ugly day outside and so I just grabbed the dog and held on to him so that he wouldn't run outside which is really ironic now <laughs> um and when I was holding on to him he gave me his paw and I was like oh, oh like can is. I just like walk out with this dog like how do I adopt a dog that they're just bringing in? yeah do I even do I even have to fill out the paperwork like I can just go <laughs> it, it's like when I beat um my car to a towing lot and I was like you don't need to bring it inside you don't need to process it <laughs> nobody has to know this happened yeah. like it saves you paperwork it saves me paperwork like let's just call it a done deal and go. <laughs> yeah let, let's expedite this okay <laughs> um, so that's how I got my dog I, he was four or five he had terrible teeth and so I'm convinced they lied to me the way all shelters lied to you about dogs um, but I had him for five and a half years. Mm. Yeah. He ended up running out one day. Just, I didn't notice. I thought he was lost and he got hit by a car oh. on Koenig and Burnett. Ah, oh, jeez. Yeah. I'm so sorry. So right by Brentwood Social House. Oh. Yeah. Like for, yeah. for all people listening. Yeah. <laughs> this, this is my beloved dog is, This episode is brought to you by Brentwood Social House. <laughs> 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 Yikes. Uh, they have nothing to do with the show. Uh, yeah, I was pet sitting for a former um, co-worker of mine who I actually managed. And she and her partner went out of town and they had a dog. And it was this like weird situation where their door lock broke and like the door would no longer close. And like I put the dog in its crate. Um, but I was like, I can't leave because the door is just going to like blow open. Yeah. And so I had to wait for, uh, this like repair guy to come. And so he comes and he repairs the door and it was like three hours later. And like, finally the whole situation was resolved. And I like took the dog out to go to the bathroom and it ran away. And it was one of those things where it was like, well, at least the door will close. It's <laughs> terrible. Yeah. It, it, the dog ended up coming back of nice. its own volition, which was very generous. It, it could have just stayed away. But yeah, it's, it's a very real thing that happens. Uh, I adopted a new dog. She's escaped three times. Oh no God. less than three times now. I think the minute we drove back to El Paso for Thanksgiving and the minute that we got back and like into my friend's house she figured out how to open the front door and like ran four blocks through only busy streets 
and avoided getting hit by a car. And oh. I was like, dear God, I just adopted you. How dare you? How dare you? <laughs> Do this to me. You're the dog that you're supposed to be healing. We're supposed to be healing together. I was going to say, that must have been so PTSD I was so for panicked. you. Oh, my God. So panicked. Yeah. She's fine. Yeah. Another, my friend's dog ran away with her <laughs> and was, like, trying to corral her back. <laughs> so they were both just, like, what's the movie where the animals run away? Homeward Bound. Yeah, mm-hmm. basically. You had that right at the tip of your tongue. My gosh. <laughs> you know, it, that was a weird COVID revisit for me <laughs> early on. It's, like, Sassy is one of the pet's names. Uh-huh. and. It's like Sally Field, Michael J. Fox. Oh, you're kidding. And someone else. Sally Field is a voice of one of those dogs. I think she plays Sassy the Cat. (laughs) Okay. Wow. Yeah. Yeah, it it, it was very weird to watch because I think if that movie were to exist now, they would just animate everything. And Mm -hmm. it was like, oh, oh, I don't know if like ethically (laughs) this is good. (laughs) That's true. They They had to direct those dogs, didn't they? Yeah, and, and like they're like jumping across like white water, like oh, it's it, it's like intense scenarios for these like animal performers. Oh my god! <laughs> they like make them. There's a whole plot. I haven't seen this movie in a very long time, but there's like a whole plot between these dogs where they're doing tricks and stunts. It, it, like that's like the movie. Like somehow, like the family lives in I don't know, like a mountainous area, mm-hmm. and like the animals are like left behind or something and they have to like work their way to like where the family moved to. And has they left the animals behind? I think they're like with an <laughs> ant or something. I don't know. It was perhaps similar to your dog. And like, they were like, we need to go. <laughs> I'm sorry. Now I'm just like wondering what the plot of this movie is for kids. It's Lord of the Rings, but with dogs, yeah. They, yeah. they have to go to Mordor and they got to come back. It's the whole thing. Yeah, one of them is really obsessed with this dark, nefarious ring and keeps, like, leading them into, like, creepy caves and is doing some bad things. You should do, like, movie summaries on this show. (laughs) Yeah, we haven't seen in years. Oh, you have. Yeah, Yeah. well, I... I was a little stoned. stoned. Yeah. Yeah. Well, it's a pandemic. Yeah. Mm-hmm. It was intense. You know, we were all we were all different people back then. That's true. No, I would still watch that movie Stoned today. <laughs> was this like March of 2020? Or? Yeah, I think what had happened was, oh, I'm getting uh, the indication that someone yeah. wants Off wine. <laughs> yeah. Uh, could you hold that? Yes. Perchance. Thank yes. You. We're like an old married couple over here. Honey, bring it closer. <laughs> I guess I could use a little pour myself. Um, yeah, so obviously Queer Town, we love to talk uh, just about like everyday experiences of queer and trans people here in Austin. So uh, that's obviously an umbrella term. So uh are you seeing anyone? Are you single? <laughs> What's dating been like here? Because I'm single, and let me tell you, it is uh, like love is a battlefield. <laughs> uh, who sings that song? Pat Benatar. Pat Benatar. <laughs> Thank you. You're very knowledgeable. Uh, I'm single. I'm on dating apps. I I think I I was on dating apps in August, and I feel like I maybe matched with everybody I was ever going to match with during that time, but then messaged absolutely nobody back because I got so sad about my dog. Yeah. So then I, like, tried to circle back recently, and I was like, hey. (laughs) 
So, like, I know we matched five months ago. <laughs> Long story. Uh, <laughs> really terrible thing happened. And then I just, like, deleted all the apps and I didn't want to talk to anybody. So, like, are you maybe still on this app now? <laughs> like, zero responses. <laughs> Everybody I, like, ever sent that message to has, like, not responded to me at all. <laughs> yeah. Uh, <laughs> yeah, that, that that's a tough one. <laughs> um. I don't know. I, I not that I've ever met anybody from an app in a meaningful way, right? But it's really. It's, I don't think so. No, I've never met anybody on Tinder, and then we like became the best of friends. I think I've met most partners that I've had in this very organic, like uh, kind of kismet, meant to be kind of way. Um, oh no, I dated one boy in the pandemic from Tinder. He wouldn't get vaccinated, and so then oh, that ended very quickly. Oh, that's your so actually. Uh, I hope you're doing well, Christopher. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I have dated quite a few people from dating apps. Yeah. Uh, how did you and Keith meet? We uh, uh, we used to work out at the same gym. What? And Whew. yeah, we worked out at the same gym, and at some point followed each other on Instagram. Um, and then four years later, I decided to message him. <laughs> it took a little bit of time to, to, to get that courage up, but I slid into those DMs. <laughs> hey, courage can be hard to, um, to find within. It's true. Yeah. I think Instagram is the best dating app. Yeah, I've heard this. I mean, obviously that's where it happened for me, but right. prior to that, right, it had right, not right. happened on that app or any app. Yeah, yeah. I just feel like Instagram is a way more natural way of uh, getting to know somebody and their life and like showing somebody else your life and experiences and seeing if you are compatible through that way. Yeah. And just like regular conversations. Yeah. It kind of uh, allows you the opportunity to connect without this like higher stakes that I think dating apps can sometimes um, allude to. There's a lot of pressure to yeah. like make that conversation go somewhere or like be your best self oh, in totally. these like messages. And I was like, I'm not my best self in any message in any setting. Like I feel I, like I am the most boring version of myself on a dating app because it's like, okay, you've like looked at like four photos of me. Um, and I need you to know that I'm insane. <laughs> I don't know if that's come across yet, but, uh, <laughs> so I'm curious about this cause I've had an Instagram for a long time, but I've also been a therapist for 12 years. So I've always had it private. Mm -hmm. Uh, so I've not had the experience of having like a public Instagram. Really? And I guess just like your Instagram is private. Yeah. 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 Cause I don't want clients to find me. Sure. Um, well, okay, this is an interesting question, and maybe I should ask this off the air, but uh, should I be tagging you in Queer Town posts? Oh, yeah, no, that's fine. That's the thing, is it's just I just have a bunch of, like, random, what I assume are bots, just, like, in my friend request folder, right? So that's just how I've always managed mm. it. But I guess, like, when a new person follows you on a public, are you just like, well, who this? And let me, like, yeah, I don't know. I just, I'm curious about how, like, that works. What do you mean? Like, is it like, I guess oh, just like, like, what's the vibe? I guess that's the thing is I've heard, right. That like Instagram is like a great dating app, right. That never applied to me. Cause it was just like friends. Um, mm -hmm. and so I guess, do you, do you just receive a DM and you're like, Oh, this person follows me or it's happened a multitude of ways yeah. for me. I'd be curious to hear your experiences. Uh, I post a photo and then somebody heart reacts to it. Or like hard eyes reacts to it. 
got it. Yeah, hard eyes there is like is. sort okay. of like Thank it's you. sort this of is exactly a, the answer I was looking for. <laughs> I was it, like, how does it start? It, it it hard eyes can be like a doorway into something. I I feel like that's how people hit on me most often. Hard eyes <laughs> not Instagram. Um, I unfortunately am just a Pisces Venus and I'm in love with everybody and everything kind of like, that's just my general vibe. I'm in love with all my friends. Yeah. (laughs) I'm in love with like new wonderful people that I meet and I, um, I'd like aim to move from that place of relationship with most people. I think so. Like (laughs) I will hard eyes react to something and it's not romantic at all or sexual at all. And I think that confuses people. (laughs) This is just like a deep platonic love that I have for existing (laughs) and living in the world. Yeah, hard eyes reacting on Instagram to me is this like really um, like deep high five that's coming from within my soul. Yeah. But I know that there are other people who hard eyes react like, whoa, I am so physically turned on right now. And the things I want to do to you based off of this one photo. (laughs) Okay, so here's the thing. I think straight people are like way more aggressive when they slide into people's DMs. And like, Mm. I don't know about you, but like as a queer person, I feel like I was always conditioned to like repress my sexuality or attraction for fear of like hitting on somebody who is not queer. And then like... And then being offensive for existing because I, I mean, I guess I was taught and maybe feel like societally we were taught that that was something bad to do to make people uncomfortable. It would make people uncomfortable with your homosexuality. Yeah. I feel like there's a lot of conditioning that's Mm -hmm. gone into how I approach flirting both in person Mm -hmm. and in like written format, because I remember there was a while there where I was out before a lot of other people were. And so it was, mm-hmm. I was same. known same, same. as like a uh, like community um, celebrity in this like very stupid way, simply because I was out at an early age. Yeah. And it was like, I never knew if someone was talking to me because they were kind of shy and wanted to come out or come on to me or whatever it was, or if they were just like a person who was talking to me. And I think I carry a lot of that mm. um, weight in a way with me still. What do you, can you expand on that? Oh, good question. Uh, I I think that when I am talking with people, uh, like I work in the film industry Mm -hmm. and there's a lot of people who are straight in the film industry, but increasingly so here in Austin, there's also like a really great queer dynamic that is forming. And I love to see that and I'm a huge champion of it. Uh, But it's always interesting whenever I mention the show, because some people are like, oh my God, like queer town. Like, what is that? (laughs) Well, it's it's a talk show. <laughs> we used to get drunk on stage. <laughs> and now we get drunk in the Queer Town Clubhouse, and you can listen to it. <laughs> Same vibe. Same vibe, yeah. <laughs> yeah, a little more low-key. Um, but, but yeah, I, I think that there's a weird aspect of, like, I can never tell if I'm acting as, like, a representative of the queer community uh, or if like this is possibly like their segue into like a flirty vibe. Mm. A representative of the queer community. I always feel like I'm a representative of the queer community as like a queer trans person of color, to be quite honest. It's like, probably fair. <laughs> like in a lot of situations, I'm the yeah. only trans person that somebody knows. And like, I am their only connection to caring about trans issues or trans people. Um, and I also came out at a really early age. I came out when I was 17 years old and I was uh, at an all girls high school and I cut off all my hair. 
And I said, it's because I feel like a boy. And then everybody said that I would not be a cute boy because I was short and like oh. very much discouraged me from transitioning on like based on completely superficial things. Um, but I was so I like went back into the closet for a couple of years and didn't tell anybody I was trans. Um, but for a long time there, I was like people's only understanding of transgender people. I came out before Caitlyn Jenner. Oh. <laughs> like yeah, that's yeah. how long I've been out. I think to the point that when like Caitlyn Jenner came out, people were coming to me with questions about how to talk about mm-hmm. Caitlyn Jenner. Mm-hmm. <laughs> what was so so I like my coming out experience, right? I came out to a few friends in high school when I was still in South America because uh, I went to a very, very liberal school um, there. Um, and for my senior year of high school, I had to move back to the States and uh uh, I ended up I ended up at an all boys mm-hmm. school, uh, and I I remember that experience of having to spend this year in an all boys school was very much like, and we are going back into the closet. We are closing yeah, this yeah. door. Um, but I'm curious what it was like at an all girls school because I think at an all boys school I had a lot of like hyper masculinity, just a lot of like just gross macho shit, and obviously like a lot of just like throwing the word fag around and, and this is gay and that's gay, especially at that time period. But yeah. here's what it was like at an all girl school. Um, you know, the people that I went to high school with are some of the biggest supporters that I've had in really? my life. Um, I can't say that they were that when we were 17 or 18 years old. Yeah. Because I think we're all uh, dumb teenagers when sure. we're 17 and 18 years old. I don't think anybody had the language for how to talk about trans people or trans issues. Yeah. Um, again, I was like a lot of... I didn't have the language to talk about my own experience. I was learning it through Tumblr and like sharing nuggets of information when I could with those people around me. Um, coming out as like a lesbian or as bisexual or as, a, as queer in high school it made me again uncomfortable for fear that I would make people uncomfortable in the school mm. around me yeah like I remember I took PE as a senior I'm not sure why I just like a throwaway credit that was easy um and enabled me to get exercise in and I for that last year after I came out would change in a room that was separate from everybody else and not because anybody made me okay. <laughs> like not because the teacher made me but because I felt uncomfortable being in the changing room with other people because I didn't want to get people looking at me weird if I so much as like stared in their direction for too long. Um, and I had the beautiful support of my friend Jackie who would go in there and change with me every day. And it was just like me and her in this like little closet in the dance studio that would change where we would change before PE every day. Was it a religious school? It was, it was a religious Catholic school. Um, it was the nuns it's run by the nuns of Loretto. Okay. And uh, the Loretto nuns are actually really radical, like, feminist Really? Nuns. Oh, cool. Yeah. So I went to this, like, radical feminist, like, Catholic school. Wow. wow. Um, but the parents that send their kids there are sure. really conservative. Yeah. So, like, and it's the parents that make the rules in any school setting, as we're seeing now, uh, like, the issues blowing up over masks and, like, books in certain schools in Texas, right? And so if there was a parent that so much has had a problem with my homosexuality, though, my mom was the parent who had the most problems with my homosexuality. Uh, Um, Like they could complain to the school administration and then the school administration would like pull me in and talk to me and tell me that a parent complained. And then like I was really cool with them. And I was like, so do I have to do anything about it? And they're like, no, but I just have to tell you. I'm glad that you had that inner confidence because I think that is something that I really lacked in high school. Confidence or like lack of self-preservation at all. Like I'm just, I just feel like I was a very fiery like rebel 
in high school. It probably really saved you, though. Yeah. I mean, I just, I guess I've always been able uh, to have a principled stance when something is wrong. And I, I think I knew being, like, ostracized for my sexuality was something that should not be happening. And so if it happened with, like, the administration or an authority figure or because of this, like, governmental body, I guess, I would push up against it. But I would also, like, closet myself to make people interpersonally comfortable. Hmm. So it's, like, balance. I think that was really strange and hard to figure out. Oh, my gosh. I, I feel like early adulthood was really navigating that balance because mm-hmm. there was an aspect of I needed to label myself so that I could have my own educational experience. But it was also difficult because how could I label something that I could not yet define to myself? Mm. And I think that that sort of paradox, it, it weighed heavily on me. Um, and, and I feel like I've finally, within the last few years, really like come into my own as far as like what my label is as a person. And obviously, like there's so many umbrellas out there, but it has been interesting working on a show like this one mm-hmm. and being like, yeah, like there were certain things that I was still working through, even at the onset of Queer Town. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I I feel like I was really fixated on labels when I first came out and mm-hmm. making sure I had the right ones because again I felt like a representative of the trans community, having to like explain this to people for the first time. And as I've gotten older, I just care less and less about labels. Yes, <laughs> yeah. Like so. I just exist in a meat suit, and sometimes <laughs> my hair is blue. <laughs> and I want felt, lots of tattoos and yeah. piercings. It feels, and it also feels like generationally, there's this generation coming up now that is way less concerned about labels in a way um and it's fascinating to me to watch because it's just like there's like a there's like a part of me that's like jealous of it right because i was just like oh you just don't understand like how hard it was to try to like cram myself into a box (laughs) Mm -hmm. um, at that age i am so envious Mm -hmm. of these people who can just try on things without having this air of like i'm changing something it's like oh, I'm interested in this, I'm interested in that. And I think that's amazing. Yeah. I think there should be more of that. I think that that's a more like healthy, yeah. natural way to go about things. But it's so different from yeah. the energy when I was in high school. I mean, in, in a very limited way, I, I guess that's a def- one definition of liberation, of mm. queer liberation. Yeah. Is not carrying the weight of all of those labels and being the defining face for them, that you can just like switch between them fluidly. Yeah, and to do it gracefully and on your own terms. Yeah, outside of <laughs> the rest of the people deciding what your gender and sex are. Yeah. <laughs> so let's talk a little bit about your job. So you obviously moved to Austin to be closer to the state capitol. Mm-hmm. So we had so many special sessions last year. So many. So many. I Was that part of the impetus to move closer to Austin just in case like that shit happens again this year? I... So I lived in El Paso for 28 years. I did legislative work uh, since 2017. It was the first time I think um, I testified. I testified in the Senate uh, against the bathroom bill in 2017. That was the first time I ever testified. I stayed up all night. I was so nauseous. And as soon as I gave my testimony, I had to run outside the Capitol and like throw up. (laughs) Oh, my God. Because I was like sick to my stomach. And it was such a hard day, too. And it was a day where you were hearing a lot of anti-trans rhetoric. Like really, we heard some terrible things this year, but it was not as bad as it was in 2017. I'll say that. The the level of thing of 
harmful things that people were saying about trans people was pretty pretty egregious and gross. Oh, I'm so sorry. Um, and it made me, it literally made me sick then. And so that was the first time I ever testified. Um, I came back every, I guess in 2019 to testify again for something or to do some lobbying. Um, but it didn't become my job until the beginning of 2021. Okay. So in January, 2021, then it became my job to like monitor and track the anti-trans and the anti-LGBTQ legislation, um, at the Capitol for the session. And this year, we had a historic number of anti-LGBTQ and anti-trans bills. There was 50 anti-trans bills filed in 2021, um, which is the most anti-trans bills that have ever been filed. Before that, there had only been one that was filed in 2019, the anti-trans sports bill, and then the anti-trans bathroom bill in 2017. Um, so 49 more bad bills against wow. trans people. Um, and I had started doing this job from El Paso where I could meet with legislators from certain committees and explain this bill, these bills and what they did and why they were bad and how to ask questions of the bill author so that they can stop the bill or at least expose some of the blatantly discriminatory holes in them. Um, and that was a job that you can pretty easily do from Zoom when everything's in a pandemic and um, when everyone's in a pandemic and everything is virtual and over Zoom. Uh, but I guess then, I mean, bill hearings for special se sessions, you get like two days notice, right? And if I'm in El Paso, driving from El Paso to Austin is an eight hour drive. It's very hard to do on a day's notice. And I did it once or twice uh, for the first and second special sessions. And I, I decided that I didn't want to do that anymore. <laughs> That's very fair. Yeah. yeah, so I I don't know, again, but I mean, mostly I moved because I could move, right? And I needed to move and I needed to get out of El Paso and see something new and something uh, different, uh, get out of my comfort zone. El Paso is a very diverse city, but it's a very, no, it's not a very diverse city. It's like majority Hispanic. It's not very diverse. It's very homogenous, like in that way, right? But it is diverse in that there are not a lot of white people. Um, everybody there looks like me and that's a very comfortable thing, I think, and a very comfortable place to grow up in as a first generation Mexican American immigrant. Um, and I took that for granted <laughs> in so many ways. And I think the, the hardest thing about being here is walking into buildings and spaces and not seeing people that look like me. Everywhere. I was going to say, how's Austin treating you? <laughs> uh, it's really white. <laughs> It's really, really white. It's very white. I yeah. was canvassing for Greg yesterday and somebody called the cops on me in their neighborhood wow. for being like a brown person <laughs> in East wow. Austin passing out campaign literature. Wow. Wow. <laughs> that is bleak. Yeah. Uh, my friend said that it happened to so many of their uh, cam like canvassers during the Beto campaign, too. Yeah. yeah. I worked on Beto's Senate campaign. Yeah. And that was a really eye-opening experience with the hostility that a lot of white people have towards anyone being on the property. Uh, like, I just remember canvassing in Cedar Park, and there were so many Second Amendment signs in a way that just felt like I could legitimately die out here because this is so hateful. It's so angry. And that it's just like in this house, we shoot first and ask questions later. It's, <laughs> it was like so many versions of that rhetoric. Yeah. Um, and, and it's just mind boggling to me. Like why have that on your front porch? Porches are supposed yeah. to be welcoming. They're supposed to bring the community into your home. 
I mean, it's just, it, to me, the idea that, like, your house is, I mean, it is legally private property, but the idea that you have to build up to this, like, fortress where nobody can come into it unless you invite them into your home just feels like uh, a, prep- a perpetuation of the individualization of our culture. Yes. Which is, like, white supremacy in practice. I don't know. And, and like, brown families, right? Like, my home is everybody's home. Yeah. Uh, to this day in Austin, I think all of my friends walk into my house without knocking. Yeah. <laughs> like, they either have keys themselves or they just, like, open the front door and they're like, I'm here. I'm like, yeah, like, that is the home and like, that I want and space that I want to cultivate and how I grew up in, right? And some of that, I think, was overwhelming as a kid where people just, like, walk in and out of your home all the time and it's a home for, like, three generations of family at any given moment. Um, but I think it's really beautiful and I think it's one of the pieces that I'm really trying to hold on to as an adult now. You, you mentioned when you were kind of making the decision about moving here that a lot of it was fueled by getting away from El Paso, uh, and that even at that point you didn't have a great impression of Austin. Correct. Uh, was that, <laughs> was that like, you, you just mentioned the white thing, right? The, the vast whiteness of Austin. Um, was, the, was that what was like kind of feeding that? Or like what was feeding kind of the, the just cons- worries about moving to Austin? Uh, worries about moving to Austin? I, I don't know. I guess I associate this place mostly with the really terrible legislative sessions for one. Okay. Um, I associate it with uh, South by Southwest being really terrible time to try to get around downtown. I think I I was here for 2019 South by Southwest and I took a scooter across town for some reason because I thought it would be a great idea. I nearly got hit by somebody in their car who's taking like a hit from a bonk. (laughs) While driving? (laughs) While driving, like in their car at the stop sign. Like one, that car nearly hit me and then I like pulled over I did this like really cool move on the scooter that like, I was fearing for my life I thought I was gonna die but it looked really cool and so I like looked at the person on the car and I was like please tell me you saw that <laughs> didn't see it at all because she was taking a hit from a bong at a, like this random stop stop sign in a neighborhood in Austin um I don't know I guess it was probably the vast whiteness of yeah. the space yeah yeah Austin feels like a place where people are trying very hard to be different um, Mm -hmm. all the time in ways that aren't necessarily unique and overpriced and actually gentrification. (laughs) Just that. And like, it's actually oppressive what you're doing. Like there is a way to, to, I don't know, there's a way to express your identity and find who you are without it coming at the expense of marginalized communities. And so much of what Austin feels like to me now is that um, is that people are doing so without any conscious um, consciousness around the consequences of their actions. Right. Yeah, I grew up here. I was born and raised in Austin. Yeah. And it has been really fascinating, disheartening, eye-opening to see how this city has changed. Mm-hmm. Uh, my grandma immigrated from England and her dad... Uh, stayed here after her parents divorced. And I think they came here in 1955. And it's really interesting. There has always been this pushback historically since the 50s with any kind of change happening in Austin. And yet so much change continues to happen here and seemingly will. And yet the city as a whole needs to find a way to maintain communities of color, to not just dismantle them because... um, someone wants to live there yeah 
I mean, there's not a lot of uh, affordable housing in the city. There's right? not. I mean, I, <laughs> I've been saving up money for a very long time because I'm a first generation immigrant. And the last like thing that I need to do to make my ancestors proud, right, is buy a house. At least that's what it feels like um, so often. And in El Paso, I can buy a house with like my savings and my credit score that I currently have. And I like looked at the amount of a home that I would be pre-approved for to buy. And there are no homes in Austin under $300,000. Yeah. yeah. There are zero homes that you can buy in the city of Austin under $300,000. Which is Incredible. so remarkable because... When my mom moved here, she moved here from the Bay Area in mm-hmm. the early 80s. And obviously that's something that like a lot of people are doing now. But mm-hmm. when she moved here, she bought a house in Bolden Creek. And I want to say that home was it, like you could not even get a home like that in like Hutto. Mm-hmm. <laughs> now it's it, I think it was around $100,000, uh, definitely under two hundred. there's nothing like that exists that exists here now and that was what 30 40 years ago well even 30 40 years ago a hundred thousand dollars feels like it probably was a lot of money um yeah it probably was yeah yeah i just i i mean i think there needs to be an effort made to keep rent in this city affordable and the i guess my biggest turnoff is the knowing that there were people here who voted rather progressively um, by El Paso standards or by most of Texas's standards, but then did not take any conscious examination of their own actions and how it contributes to like the inflation of housing prices yeah. that push uh, poor black and brown people out of the city. I think I had heard a lot about people not wanting like the tents in their like, yeah. in the city generally. Yeah, that... um, and criminalizing homelessness. Right? Like, how do you? What? That was a really you... shameful thing. That was yeah. very shameful. Yeah, I just I. So things like that, I think, turned me off from from living here and having to confront those situations directly and have conversations with people like that. And I've met a couple of people like that um, since I've moved here. And I I don't know if I think it's worth my energy (laughs) to have those conversations, especially after like two years of being in a pandemic. I feel kind a little bit feral. I don't know about you all. Mm -hmm. Like when it comes to like meeting strangers, I don't have quite the same eloquence that I used to in having difficult conversations with people Um, because it's been a while since I've been exposed to anybody that I did not 100% choose to be with. Yeah. Um, And there is like a certain... Uh, emotional aspect oh, yeah, it's conversations strange. where people have these really firmly held beliefs yeah. that aren't necessarily rooted in fact. And it's like, how do you have those conversations in a way that is productive, that it all moves the needle? Cause I look at it and it's like, okay, you don't want to see people who don't have a home. Um, what is the solution for what we're going to do? Mm-hmm. And I find that a lot of times they don't have an answer to that. It's literally, I don't want to see it. Right. Because if I don't see it, it doesn't exist. But it's like, it does exist. Mm-hmm. It exists for very real systemic issues. And I don't know, it's that kind of thing where I'm like, okay, but like, why aren't you getting my point? <laughs> and it's like, okay, I should not be the, the spokesperson because I'm also going to get to an emotional point. And yeah. I, it's, um, it, it's tough as an individual to navigate that. Yeah. I, I mean, I think some of the arguments that I see most commonly against uh, visible homelessness in the city is that it brings down their own property value, yeah. <laughs> which mm-hmm. like how, 
how more you can't get any more convoluted than that about how this personally impacts your finances and your wealth and that is what you are prioritizing in the situation rather than somebody's like lived humanity <laughs> i just like that is a choice that you're making and i i can't grapple with making that choice over caring more about my property value than caring about like the humanity of my neighbors and all of the people that live in my city i don't know i want to run for office one day and like i because of things like that right because i think the people that are in elected office should care about like the well-being of everybody that they represent not just the people who pay into their campaigns well, you should definitely be in office if that's something. You One think. day. We, we need that perspective. I don't know. I don't think anybody will vote for me when I have blue hair, but <laughs> we can try. <laughs> um, I think I'm going to do a report of this if anyone else wants some. Yeah. Uh, I'm gonna, can I ask a very therapist-y question? Uh, yes, please. You, do you charge? I, do I have to Venmo you? Very, very low. Uh, <laughs> The work that you do sounds yeah. incredibly emotionally laborious, right? Um, and so, yeah, the therapisty question is like, how do you take care of yourself in all of this? Um, I am a person that thrives on routines. Yeah. And so when I am able to, to have a routine in my day, I am mentally healthier for that day. Even if it's a day when I have to work till 11 or 12, like in the morning, right? Mm -hmm. um, if I wake up in the morning and I am able to exercise and then I'm able to like have breakfast, which is the same. I drink the same blueberry shake every morning. Um, I, it is a brand that I'm attempting to cultivate for myself. Like if, when I'm no longer on this earth, I want somebody to mention that I had a blueberry shake every morning <laughs> to the extent that I would take my like magic blender to El Paso with me <laughs> every time that I went to El Paso this year. I think it fits. You have blue hair, you drink <laughs> you a blueberry shake. Um, I'm sensing a brand coming to life here. I'm, this is mostly a joke. <laughs> I'm mostly joking. Oh, I am too. <laughs> um, I don't know. I think the hardest thing is working on like uh, medical care bands for trans kids. Mm -hmm. I think whenever anything comes up in like my periphery that is touching on literally the deepest parts of my trauma. Yeah. Um, that is when I have a really hard time functioning and I, and I have been able to sense myself shutting down and not being as productive to the conversation as I would like to be. Um, I think I was really good at working on like trans athlete bands because it didn't affect me so personally, even if some of the rhetoric against trans people does sometimes hit a little bit harder than I would like it to. Mm -hmm. Um, when it comes to the idea of like banning access to healthcare for trans kids, um, that I was 17 years old when I came out and one of the only things that kept me going was knowing that I would one day be able to access that care. Right. Right. And I know that it would still be the same for trans kids once they turn 18, but we have medical interventions now that can save kids from having to ever go through the excruciating process of a puberty that sure. puts you in a situation that you do not, or in a body that you do not identify with that makes you deeply uncomfortable and like triggers intense gender dysphoria. Right. Um, and to deprive kids of that, knowing that it exists and that it has been used safely on uh, cisgender kids and not transgender kids for years now, like that is a particular kind of evil yeah. and harm coming from the people that are trying to pass these bills. And I think that that hurts um, that hurts me pretty yeah. deeply, but it also puts me in a position where I'm able to share my story. Right. 
with those legislators and hope that they someday care about it. And so it's something that I, I have done quite a bit um, with the people who are trying to pass this bill. And it looks like they're still pursuing it on multiple fronts. And I, I, that pain is also, uh, I think, a unique one that leaves me pretty emotionally exhausted and hopeless yeah. at the end of the day. Um, but I, I do believe that this is just a blip in our history right. and that it'll resolve itself with time. Hmm. Like, I think I've seen a lot of progress happen for transgender people and for the LGBTQ community in the last, what, 12 years since I came out. Um, and knowing, having that history that I get to hold on to is what keeps me going and believing that the next 12 years, um, there will be positive change for trans kids in Texas. Yeah. Though our electoral maps are pretty pretty screwy. I don't know if Democrats will ever be in power again, but the good news is that there's trans Republicans and Democrats. <laughs> I, I mean, that's what I'm like struck by is just like, that's what's been hard for me personally in the last couple of years is maintaining hope. Uh, cause mm -hmm. things have been pretty bleak. Um, so I'm glad to hear that you can hold on to that because I'm sure that that it's is what, what keeps you going, right? Uh, I say this every single podcast, every single public speaking thing I ever do, but Miriam Kaba um, did a podcast interview, uh, and I, I can't remember the name of the podcast, but it's about incarceration in the U.S. Um, and in it, she says that hope is a discipline and it's something that she chooses to believe. Like she wakes up in the morning and she chooses to believe differently. Yeah. And it is a choice that you make that you can make for yourself instead yeah. of falling into hopelessness and despair. And like, you can also let yourself be hopeless and feel sure. despair every once in a while because sure. the, the world is pretty bleak. Yeah. And like, I think, uh, without getting into toxic, to toxic, toxic positivity, um, there's a way to hold both and still practice like hope as a discipline that you hold yourself to. Yeah. I mean, I, I mean, I do this work, right? Like my, I can't do this work without believing that a better world is possible. For sure. Like that is the basis of all, of everything. I have to be able to look at somebody and believe that they're capable of radical transformation and believe that they are capable of humanity and recognizing the humanity in transgender people and LGBTQ people in Texas and recognizing that is more important than their own political interests in their election because that is what they're doing fundamentally right now. Yeah. But again, it's a perpetuation of white supremacy. Yeah. Mm -hmm. So what is something that someone who might be listening to this, who is not historically an advocate, um, what is something that they can do that would really benefit this crucial work that you are doing statewide? Something that they can do. I have difficult conversations with people in your life. <laughs> I think that is what we all need to be doing more of. Um, educating ourselves, but also making sure that the things that we learn uh, don't stay only with us, right? You are the most powerful advocate for your circle of friends and family, um, and you can talk to those people in your life in a way that I will never be able to. And that is the only way I think that we're gonna see change happen. And you can also, like after having that difficult conversation with them, and it's gonna take years, right? Like it's gonna take a very long time um, to be able to get to a place where they might agree with you wholeheartedly in your values. Um, change doesn't happen easily and it doesn't happen overnight, but you like starting that conversation is the most important step you can take to continuing it. I don't know, I think that's the most, you can also get involved with organizations like the ACLU <laughs> and like sign up for our email lists and find out what we're doing. But 
that's just like a nonprofit plug, right? I just think that like yeah. <laughs> interpersonal uh, connection is way more important to creating change, like uh, changing the culture is what we need to do, right? And you can take like very specific political actions with organizations and nonprofits in Texas like mine that are designed to do that specific thing. But we can change things politically and we also have to change the culture at the same time. And we change the culture by having those difficult conversations with the people around us. That's so true. Yeah. So if you're listening to this, have a conversation, have a cup of coffee and change the world. Or a glass of natural wine. Yeah. You know what? Let's cheers. Is this natural yeah. wine? This is. Is that why wine. I love it? Okay. It might be. Yeah. <laughs> cheers. Cheers to queers. Yes. Cheers to queers. Mm-hmm. I've never said that in my life. How does it feel uh, rolling off your tongue? Um, it feels nice. Did you see the fake Netflix screenshot of Che Diaz? Yes. Yes. I <laughs> yes. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, we, it's, it's a breath, breath of fresh, fresh there. there. <laughs> yeah. 